Hey everyone, and welcome to episode 11 of the Offsite podcast, where we chat all things construction and technology. My name's Carlos, and I spend most of my days talking to construction teams about how they deliver projects. And I'm Jason, and I help build software that construction teams use to deliver their projects. I've got a, another chip piece of artwork behind me today, uh, as well as the aircon that you can probably hear in the recording. Four weeks in a row referencing something in camera for people on a podcast. That's going to be the <laughs> that's going to be the trademark of of the of the intro, Carlos. If if only our banter was as engaging as our as our content, we would be uh, we'd be flying, right? <laughs> yeah. How's how's your week going? Uh, yeah, not bad. Uh, busy. I uh, yeah. I had a, a wedding at the weekend, which took a couple of days out of me. So now I'm playing catch up. Yourself? Good. I um, actually got, for the first time this week, I got a, a series of lovely messages from people that have listened to uh, this attempt at a podcast, uh, saying that they enjoy, found it really relatable and engaging, which was, which was, I think, a shock to me. Um, but it was, it was, uh, yeah, it was lovely. I uh, I actually got told it was the best podcast someone ever listened to, but. Uh, my mum probably how, is a little bit biased. How, yeah, how drunk, <laughs> how drunk was your mum at that point? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. I, I'm hoping sober, but she definitely wasn't. <laughs> right, so uh, <laughs> this week's a very exciting one. Uh, we have our first ever guest. We've got Josh Weatherly uh, on the pod, uh, a construction manager from Jacobs working on Neon. But before we get to that, we're going to kick off with a discussion about the Apple Vision Pro. Those of you who caught up with tech news in the last week or so, uh, we had the the usual Apple launch where they go through everything from like hardware, software to new products. And they released something called the Pro Vision, Vision Pro, which way around, Vision Pro. And this is Apple's first sort of headset. So everyone's quite familiar with, I think, the Oculus um, and various other sort of headsets that are really aimed at sort of gaming and things like that. But this... What looks a bit different is it essentially blends digital content with actual physical space. So you have screens in front of you, but you can actually see all the real world around you, um, which is pretty cool. So first impressions was, it obviously, it looks cool. It's Apple. It makes competitors look basic, but it does come with a price tag. Um, I think it was $3,500, so expensive piece of kit. And I say it looks also, it does kind of look like a bit ski goggles, but the aim... I was going to say your bar, your bar for like what looks cool has uh, changed significantly. <laughs> well, I, I really like the glass. It's like the curve on it, it, it looks cool. If they were ski goggles <laughs> that were a bit flatter, they would be cool ski goggles. Be like um, wearing goggles with eyeballs painted on them. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, but uh, they made it clear that the objective is actually to get down to actual glasses. So once they can get all the text small enough, it will just be like your day-to-day glasses. The general sort of consumer use is, it's basically sticking an Apple TV on your face. You can you can watch movies, you can play games, you can scroll through apps, you can browse the web. So pretty cool stuff. But I guess, obviously, we need to think about it in the context of construction. There's obvious use cases that will come out for things like design um, and looking at BIM models. So you can see the model around you, you can see asset data, you can see I know, walkways, exclusion zones, things like that. Um, so the immersive experience is an obvious one that we'll see and people have used headsets like that before pretty shit but kind of we get the idea i started thinking about the sort of reality capture side of things so if you're on site and you've got these sort of goggles on assuming you're not falling over trip hazards that you can't see because they're on your head you could be looking at a wall or an asset you've got the bin model data that's attached to it but you could start to actually 
capture information. So you could be doing inspections, you could be pulling together diaries and records, you could be generating snag lists by looking at things. It monitors your eye, so you can actually just look at something. You could probably then just speak and then add details to something that's then tagged it to a location, it's tagged it to an asset, it knows who captured the information, it knows what you effectively instructed this system to do. So Jason, as a, as a QS that's been on site about three and a half times, uh, does that seem like a realistic um, use of it? For a second, I thought you were introducing me as the QS. Um, <laughs> I remember, no, no, I'm not a QS. Look, I don't know. The, the thing that ever, like every news article was banging on about was the price at like three and a half thousand USD. The, the price really to me was, uh, if you were thinking about it from a construction perspective, relative like if you think about the competitors out there there's the that microsoft hololens which a lot of whenever we see construction specific vr ar demo things where people are walking around like a a bim model of this like a model of the site uh that's usually on the hololens product they're like three and a half thousand pounds and for the base version going up to like almost five thousand pounds so i don't think the price is like a I don't think the price for Apple specifically is a problem. I think for the price for the entire category is like a problem if it was going to be used. But really, I just don't know what the killer app is. Like if we think about like our mobile phones, when, when, that, when that transition to mobile happened, it was, it was the things like having the, like a social media app or the camera or, or the thing that drove the actual adoption of the, the technology. And we paid, you know, $1,000 for a phone. Without that killer app, these things become that novelty that sits in that special room that visitors that come to the project get to go into and turn on and they remember how to fire up the, the little demo. So I started thinking about like what is the what could be the, the killer app. Um, and uh, I didn't come up with any great ideas, is the spoiler alert. Um, <laughs> I saw what you want on the pod. <laughs> Shit <Yeah>. ideas from <laughs> Jason that seen it, you. <laughs> Like, obviously, we see a lot of all of the the guys, the, you know, XYZ reality do they, this is like their core, their core uh, uh, product. There's a lot of demonstrations of people walking around the site and seeing a model and being, oh, there, there's the column, you know, whatever, there's the pile. But that, if that use case is actually valuable for a project, it has to be something that like the end installer can use. Like, so it's not just the, you know, the, the engineer that's doing a little jolly around the site or the QS walking around with the one headset that the project owns for it to be really valuable. Like all the people actually doing the work need these headsets. And like, obviously projects don't have three and a half grand per person to, to whack around. Um, and then I had the other idea of like, you know when you're putting together IKEA sets and uh, you always have to like do a couple of things and then you go back to the instruction manual and then you go back to do the couple of things and you go back to the instruction manual, like you basically get this feed of the instructions step by step as you're, you're doing them in there. Um, but again, like all of those, it's, just, it's a lot of headsets. So I don't know, Carlos, and I don't, I don't even know if I'm sold of your uh, reality capture thing because like it, again, in reality, um, it's way cheaper to just stick a helmet on your head and in the future, it'll be even cheaper to get the robot to do a lap of the site or the drone than it will be to, to have Carlos, the QS, walking out for his one trip a month with the, with the <laughs> goggles on. I'm expecting to just look at things and it's, it's doing my payments. Uh, it's just, yeah, working out everything. You know you don't, need, you, don't, you know you don't even need to leave the office to do your payments, sir. <laughs> yeah, just ask the engineer. Easy. <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah, I so, don't know. It's um. So yeah. No, I was just gonna say. I don't know if you had. Uh, I don't know if you wanted to contribute some bad ideas to the bad ideas collection, but um... other than the the really good idea I had, I mean, there's there's some obvious things, right? So if we if we assume we've got to the end goal, which is glasses, so there's not this giant thing in your face, and you can carry on with your day to day, but it could present useful information. There could be like some cool like hazard stuff, which we have seen on helmets, but like not a massive helmet that looks like again a giant ski goggle. Um, it must be able to give you useful information if it got really intelligent it could like correct you when you're doing something wrong like i think there's just a lot of spaces it'll go into it's so early that i don't think anyone knows where that will go yet it's clearly just a gadget for people to watch tv on a plane <laughs> i just moment. i just so. had when you when you mentioned glasses i just had a, a, a memory of a, a project i worked on which is a sort of major gas infrastructure project and we, we obviously provided like PPE for, for the workforce. And, uh, and someone did a, an accounting of how much we're spending on safety glasses every, uh, every month and replacing the safety glasses for the team. And uh, we actually worked out at one point uh, during a period of the project that we were replacing everyone on the project's safety glasses once every two weeks. <laughs> and so I just had a moment there where I was like, if as soon as you've got your, you know, your AR safety glasses, that bill's going to be, uh, yeah, yeah, that bill's going to be pretty Every time expensive. they fall off, you're like, fuck. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Can I have another pair? Yeah. Uh, yeah. They'd have to be like shatterproof. They like, they probably encase them in these like massive, like security boxes or something just so you could wear them. <laughs> yeah. Like uh, either, either, either everyone on the project has three pairs of these glasses or like, or there's this one person that just has this giant room full of glasses at home that they've collected, uh, yeah. taking one per day. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I think, I think we're going to be using our regular eyeballs for the time being. Yeah. I think that's a fair statement. Um, to wrap up the section, you just mentioned Ikea. So a crazy stat the other day, 10% of the babies that were conceived in the world last year were conceived on an Ikea bed. Sorry, we, we did not prep any... We did, <laughs> you did not know that I was going to mention Ikea at all. No, but I saw this stat this... yesterday and I was like, that's mad. 10% of the world's babies are conceived on an Ikea bed. That is uh, market dominance. <laughs> it was right. a busy, busy day uh, yesterday. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Awesome. So next on to, uh, next to, to the, uh, the next part, which is our guest. So Josh Weatherly, for those that are listening, uh, Josh is a civil engineer. Uh, he's worked on Crossrail with Skanska. He's worked on HS2 with Ferrovial. Uh, pretty sure he did a stint in New Zealand and he now works on uh, Neom with Jacobs. So a bit of an all-star CV, all-star guest. Josh, how are you? Good morning. Yeah, not too bad. Thanks for, uh, thanks for having me on. Big listener. <laughs> good to hear. Good to hear. One of one of five listeners of the, the uh, offsite pod. Yeah. So, um, I guess to kick off a bit of a discussion, Neom. Yes. We're all educated on Neom via news, whether it's like official Neom content or like articles and various bits of information we can find online. There's someone working on it. Can you tell us a bit about the scheme? Uh, I can, yeah. So for those that, that don't know where it is in Saudi Arabia, um, it's situated on the west west coast, so it borders the Red Sea. Um, it's about 200 kilometers from uh, the Jordanian border. We are under construction at the moment, so there's been about 4,000 piles that have, uh, that, have been, um, that have been constructed between 1.5 and 2.5 uh, meters in diameter. 
I work for Jacobs. We're part of a, the Knee on the Line delivery partner, which consists of Parsons Corporation uh, and Atkins, S&C, Lavallon. Um, and then Bechtel are also on site constructing the spine as well, which is this transportation corridor that runs parallel to the line. 4,000 piles. That's, uh, that's quite a number. Yeah. I had the, the joy of going out to, to Saudi to see the piling operation about six weeks ago now, and it's pretty colossal. There is, there's a, each module is 800 meters long by 200 meters wide. So that gives you the kind of 2D scale of, of the project. Um, and there was, I don't know, 60, 70 piling rigs on site. Um, so, so within an 800 meter um, long module, it's quite congested with a lot of big kit, um, which is great for a civil engineer because that's what we love. Josh, nice to meet you. Um, I guess, uh... For, for those that have like looked up the line and for those that haven't, they should definitely uh, look it up or the whole NEOM uh, scheme. This, the scale of the project is like staggering. And I guess the, um, the challenge of that scale is probably not lost on the team actually trying to deliver the, the project. How, how, do you, how does a project team like manage pre-production planning at like such an epic scale? So by that, I mean like if I think about previous projects that I've worked on, we think about uh, um, before the project begins, what suppliers are we going to go to for precast or different things? And like, I was wondering whether you folks have challenges like where are there enough workers in the, the country? You know, where would we accommodate all these people? Is there enough glass in the, in the world for the giant glass line? Like, are those problems that you guys are like actively like having to, to plan for? So... <clears throat> There are, there are some really unique challenges with, with the program and actually the logic links within the program as well. So at the moment, we've, you know, we've got a, we're trying to overcome the, the, waterproofing, the waterproofing interface between the, the piles, the waterproofing, the raft slabs. It, it takes quite a lot of robust planning to, to plan for the, the interfaces, the scopes, um, which package of works do these, these activities fall within. So it is really complex, and as the design develops and the design matures, that program is going to need to be more robust to achieve the ambitions of, I think, 300,000 people living in the line by 2030. Yeah, so I, when I was thinking about this before, I was like, like you've worked on mega projects for years on like Crossrail and High Speed 2, and, and like I guess many of us that – like others of us that I did work on those projects, you you probably saw and experienced things on Crossrail HS2 that and you thought like, gee, if I ever had the chance to to start one of these mega projects again from from an early stage, I'd do this differently or that differently. And and now you probably have the chance. Is there anything that you're taking from Crossrail HS2 to be like, oh, this is a definite learning that I'd I'm I'm trying to apply uh, at this at this new mega mega challenge. I thought about this yesterday. I think it seems like construction projects all over the world have an obsession with starting work at the earliest opportunity. Um, and I feel like a lot of, a lot of mega projects, giga projects lack, lack maturity when they start. So the analogy that I have is it's like getting a team of professional sports people that have never played together, never met together um, without doing any preseason playing their first game and trying to uh, trying to win gold or trying to win the Prem or something like that. So That's an episode of Ted Lasso, I think, isn't it? 
<laughs> quite possibly yeah um and I, I just think we've got this obsession and we we as an industry need to need to make sure that our teams are mature enough to go out there and and deliver effectively our designs are mature enough to feed into the construction team so the construction teams know what they're doing so you enhance and increase project certainty and i think that kind of falls back onto onto clients world over that they need to, I think there's an opportunity for clients to spend a little bit more money upfront to get those teams formed and to get those designs mature. And then over the course of that project, which could be, I don't know, in Crossroads case, a decade and HS2's case, a decade, um, I think you will see less cost uncertainty the further the project progresses because the, you have the design, you've got the design, you know, 80%, you've got the team 80%. So, yeah, it's, you like the, it, it's, um, like, it's like the classic, uh, sorry, Carlos, it's like the classic construction, um, design and construct death spiral, uh, not to be overly dramatic, but like the, the design, uh, there's not enough buffer between design and construction through the program. The design slips, but the construction starts and then, uh, well, we don't want to, you know, we don't, we, we want to hold these end dates once we've started digging the hole in the ground. And then so we start doing this thing where we break the design up into smaller and smaller pieces to release work earlier and earlier. Like in the in the language of like some projects, you go from gates to mini gates to try and release bits of the work early. And then all of a sudden, like the complexity of that design just like skyrockets and suddenly like a design team of 50 is like 400. And actually the design's probably taking like five times as long. And then we've realized that like the slab that we need to pour next week is in the, the gate that we've not planned for another six months. And it's just, then it's just all, yeah, it all just starts collapsing in, doesn't it? What, uh, with- yeah. I, I mean, a, a real solid construction example is I don't understand why we don't get a team of, um, a team into do ground investigation surveys, non-intrusive or intrusive, pretty comprehensive. So when construction teams do break ground, they have an element of certainty with what they're dealing with. But common practice is construction teams don't really know what they're uh, digging into until they start construction. And then something happens and then they go, oh, shit, this design doesn't work. That's design rework. That's cranking up the cost. That's extending the program. You're, you know, they were all unforeseen circumstances, which you could have had greater certainty on if you just spent, I don't know, 50, 100 grand doing a, gra- a pretty comprehensive ground investigation survey in the first place, which would then inform the design help prep the contractors and make the, make the scheme and program run a little bit smoother. Yeah. Like the cheapest insurance policy you'd ever get. Oh (laughs) man, a hundred percent. Yeah. Yeah. But it's just, it's that change in mindset, isn't it? It's that change in mindset that you're spending money, but you're not getting something tangible. You're not seeing construction progress, but what you, what you're actually seeing is project certainty. You know, you'll see, you'll see a more streamlined program, streamlined costs. And really, that's what that's what the taxpayer and the client want. And, and what's what's super interesting, I had this conversation with some folks from a couple of uh, the larger contractors here in Australia recently. Uh, in the game of like tendering these projects, if the client hasn't done that ground investigation and the contractor deems that that like uncertainty is to their advantage, they'll be happily happy to accept this like ambiguity because they know that they can leverage that. You know, once the contract's won. Yeah, they account for it in the risk pot. 
So and I, I really hope within within our industry that there's an opportunity to co- collaborate far harder and far greater at the outset. So we've got you, you see Project 13 principles being rolled out, you know, and and that's a good opportunity for client designer contractor to be singing off the same hymn sheet for the contractor to feel involved and for the contractor to have influence into the design. So all of those value engineering opportunities don't come down the road too late. Those VE ops are being incorporated into the design from the outset. Um, and then maybe, you know, the project 13 principles, if your KPIs and incentivizations are based around productivity or, you know, the use of MMC or, you know, how many milestones you hit, like legitimate milestones, not fabricated milestones that happen yeah. on Crossrail. Um, <laughs> then, <laughs> then, <laughs> yeah, mic drop. Um, yeah, let's all uh, get a work from yeah, yeah. prepped for the for the big photo opportunity. <laughs> so, so Josh, uh, last I guess last question for me. Uh, changing the changing the tact a little bit for for like anyone listening or or even in particular like a younger person in their career that's seeing or hearing about neom and going oh this looks like a an interesting challenge or something that might be a nice like uh you know opportunity to do something different are there any packages or contracts uh, on the project that are either one or not yet one that you go like if there was a cool one that i'd recommend to a friend or super interesting one what do you reckon are the like the, the things that you'd be like, these are the, these are the super interesting things that you'd want to uh, push someone to do. Good question. I mean, ne- Neom, the line is one big, amazing challenge, right? It's diversifying Saudi's economy. Um, so they're, they're less reliant on, uh, on hydrocarbons and that, you know, they're diversifying their, their economy in their country, which is, an amazing challenge. It's an amazing opportunity um, to see that part of the world develop and grow, and you know, to to help help kind of develop and, and grow that that country as well. You've obviously got the the big juicy bits of reinforced concrete, the 500 meter high cores, the primary floors, the secondary cores. There's it's so much kind of you know big person. You know, there's a lot of massive plant that's going to have to go. A really exciting kit that that needs to. Um, that needs to be utilized to, to construct me on the line. But I actually think that the, the, the livability space within the line itself is going to be the greatest challenge. And if executed, if executed well, then you're having such a, a big, a big um, you know, a big part to play in, in creating the, the line as it was intended. Yeah. And what, I guess um, what the final people, the, the people that live there will actually like see and use and, and, and uh, experience. Yeah. And I think it's that mismatch, isn't it? Of, or miss mismatch of livability. It's the workspace. It's the office space. It's the community space. It's the healthcare, the education, the sports facilities and how all that stuff interacts with one another and then how you construct it. And the only way it can be constructed is through offsite manufacturer and modern methods of construction. Um, so my advice to any young person would be, uh, I think the UK have just released a modern methods of construction HNC. Um, and that's how I started my career. Bit of a hands-on apprenticeship. You get a far greater, round, more rounded understanding of civil engineering and what you're going to do before you go into the more academic degree 
Um, so when you do hit site, you've got a pretty good understanding of it all. And that is the way our industry has to go to address carbon cost program challenges. Um, so I would say the livability piece in the on the line is a, is a really awesome opportunity um, uh, and a really great challenge. Yeah, awesome. That's cool. And I, I noticed, uh, given your background on HSO and Crossroad, that you didn't say the high-speed rail package. Not reading anything into that. No, the, the old <laughs> transportation corridor. <laughs> well, the reason why I said it's transportation corridor is because it's not just the... It's not just rail, right? That transportation corridor is for um, is for pedestrians. It's for vehicles. It's for utilities. It's for rail. So it's transporting anything from point A to point B that can yeah feed the feed the livability of of knee on the line. Right, uh, we've absolutely blasted through our time there. Um, I've learned a lesson. Don't try and get in a question between two civil engineers having a conversation. So that was good. Um, <laughs> Josh, thank you very much for coming on the show. Uh, that was great. Uh, it's good to hear like information on the hot topic from someone who's actually on the ground there. So yeah, thank you very much for joining the no podcast problem. today. Cheers, chaps. No problem. Right. Uh, yeah. And that is all we have time for today. So as always, thank you very much for listening.